Uh, hi, my name is Christina, and this is Andrew, and we will be reading today's scripture, which comes from Colossians 3, 5 through 11. Please give your attention to the reading of God's word. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Amen. And now let's please give our attention to the preaching of God's word. Thank you, Andrew and Christina. Uh, they're my small group leaders. I love them. Good morning, my name is Dan. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Central. It's my privilege to preach God's word today. Please join me in a word of prayer. Father God, as we open up your word at this time, we ask for your help. Help us to receive your word with much gladness and obedience. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. When I moved to California five years ago, I didn't know much about California, and I learned a lot about California. One cool fact that I learned that in California, there is both the highest point and lowest point in the lower 48 states. So Mount Whitney, 14,494 feet, and Badwater Basin in Death Valley at 282 feet below sea level. I share that because as I was thinking about California and this text, it actually gives us a helpful illustration for what we call sanctification. In the passage that the Quans just read, Paul says things like, put away or put to death these certain sins. And by saying put away and put to death, what he's talking about is sanctification. The process of growing in holiness or you may say godliness or Christ-likeness. Uh, and more simply put, it just means your life is more and more aligned to what God teaches us in Scripture. That's sanctification. So what does Mount Whitney and Badwater Basin have to do with that? Well, both are in California. And when we become believers, we all place our faith in Christ and we are saved by God's grace and we are all in Christ, and yet those who are in Christ are in very different places in their journey on sanctification. There are those Christians who are mature, they're on Mount Whitney, they're walking with the Lord, and there are other believers who are at times and seasons in Badwater Basin and Death Valley. They are living in sin, they are straying and wandering from the Lord, but both have placed their faith in Christ. And because of, of that, they are saved by God's grace, and they are loved by God, and they are both believers. Whether you are on Mount Whitney or in Death Valley, you are no further from God, one or the other. You are no further from God's love. God loves both believers, the wayward 
and the faithful equally. And that's a beautiful picture of the gospel. Paul here, he is urging Christians to grow in their faith, knowing that it's a challenge because he says there were sins you were once living in and walking in before becoming a Christian. And now he says, put them away. What does that suggest? It means they're still struggling with a lot of those same sins, if not all of them, which means that when we become believers, we didn't become believers because we did away with a lot of our sin first. We didn't become Christian by looking like a Christian before we became Christian. That's not what the gospel teaches. No, the gospel teaches that there are going to be messy and broken and sinful people who, when they recognize their sin and repent and say, God, I'm a sinner and I need your help. I can't save myself. I need Jesus who died on the cross. Then and there they are saved. And then begins that journey of putting that sin away. Both believers, if you're on Whitney or in Death Valley, you're in California. You don't drive to Arizona to get to Death Valley. You don't leave the state of being a Christian even when you wander afar and you're running away from God. There may be people here who are recently returning to church because you've wandered from God. But if you have placed your faith in Christ, we're glad that you're here. God has never loved you any less. There may be people here who are living in sin as Christians that they thought they would never live in or commit. And you are appalled by that sin. And I want you to know God still loves you the same. And that's the beautiful message of the gospel. The goal of sanctification, what is the purpose of putting away and putting to death the sin in our life? Paul shares the reason for this in verse 10. He says this, And have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. In other words, the goal is to look more like Christ, and we look more like Christ by living a life that glorifies God, and we live a life that glorifies God through obeying God and living a life that is aligned with God's word, the Bible. Now, this goes against the grain of culture today because our culture says, be yourself. That is where you're going to find the most glory and happiness and joy. But the Bible says, no, that's not where you're going to find your greatest self-fulfillment and joy and happiness. The Bible says, be like Christ. Christ was most joyful and most happy and most blessed living a life of obedience to his heavenly father. And we do the same with ours. How do we do this? How do we put these sins to death? How do we put them away? Well, depending on a particular sin, there may be different practical counsels or advice. Um, but all sin in general, what all sin needs in order to put it to death is what Paul says in verse 2. To set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. If we want to have any chance and any hope at putting sin to death, looking more like Christ, what we all need is to set our minds on things that are above, which means this. It means to have heavenly values, not earthly values. 
It means we listen to God's word more than the world and culture. It means we see things from God's perspective and no longer from society's perspective. And this is essential if we're going to put away the sin in our lives. We're going to unpack later heavenly perspective on some of the specific sins that Paul lists here. Uh, But before that, we're going to unpack a little further a basic understanding of what sanctification is. The first point is this, that sanctification does not precede justification. It flows from justification. And I know that's a lot of Christian lingo. Uh, We'll make sense of it. In verse 5 through 7, Paul says this, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is the idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. So the command to put these things away comes after you place your faith in Christ, not before, as I said. Which means, what do we expect? We expect Christians to have a lot of baggage. We do not expect Christians to be perfect. Maybe you've heard the accusation that Christians are hypocrites and everyone who goes to church, they're all hypocrites. None of them do what the Bible says. But it's important that we understand inconsistency is not the same as hypocrisy. The word hypocrisy in the Bible, it's connected to the word for actors in a play. So hypocrites are those who know they are faking it. They know they are not Christians. They're just acting like Christians. Are they in the church? They are. But I would say many who are in the church are not trying to fake it. They are genuinely trying to follow Christ. They're just inconsistent and imperfect in following Jesus. And that's all of us, including myself. And sanctification, a biblical understanding of it, helps us understand and refute that accusation. No, Christians are not going to be perfect. We're not going to do everything the Bible says Because we are all a work in progress. And inconsistency is not the same as hypocrisy. This also means the church is going to be messy. I mentioned that Mount Whitney and Badwater Basin are both in California. Not only are they both in California, they're both in the same county. They're only an hour and a half from each other. That's remarkable. And I share that because not only within Christianity... Is there going to be diversity of where you are in your walk with the Lord? Within the same church, that's what we should also expect. There's going to be Mount Whitney Christians and Badwater Basin Christians. We should not be surprised or shocked. We're broken, but we're not surprised and shocked when we see sin in the church. Egregious sin in the church at times, too. Because believers are all wrestling with different sins. Paul says in the church, he's writing to the Colossians, they're struggling with sexual immorality. They're angry, slanderous, gossipers. The word for sexual immorality is porneia. And the kind of sexual immorality in the Roman Empire would make even our culture today blush. The things that they were doing... And Christians in the church were still doing those things. But they were still believers because they had repented, placed their faith in Christ, and by grace they are saved. 
And Paul is now teaching them, it's time to grow up as a believer. It's time to put those away. It's a slow and arduous process, and you don't do it alone. It's with the help of the Holy Spirit and the church. But the only way that the church, we're going to help each other progress in sanctification is if we aren't so turned off by sin. And if we understand it's actually expected within the church. I think at times in the church, we're better at helping each other in times of suffering than helping each other with sin. I liken it to when we help each other with suffering, it's like helping somebody move. It's not enjoyable. It's hard carrying a lot of heavy boxes, loading and unloading. Helping somebody with their sin is more like helping them clean a really messy house. Picture trash everywhere, mold and roaches. Between the two, if you had to choose, would you rather help somebody with their suffering or with their sin? For myself, I would rather help somebody with their suffering, with their sin, because sin is messy. And if that's the impression that we give, don't bring your mess here. Don't talk about your mess in small groups. Keep it to yourself. We don't want to help you with that. It goes against what Paul, the the picture Paul is painting here of what the church is going to look like and what we expect. Now that we have a good understanding or a better understanding of what sanctification is and what the expectations are, there are three sins on this list I wanted to briefly unpack. Sexual immorality, speech, and racism. Uh, We're going to see how these are sins in God's eyes, and we'll see how these sins deviate from God's good design, and that if we want to have a life of joy and blessedness, it's worth fighting these sins and putting them away. So the first we're going to look at is sexual immorality, the Christian ethics on sexual immorality. And these are all brief. Each one of these could be a whole sermon or, or seminar in itself. Paul says that we are to put, a, put to death sexual immorality. If we're to put to death sexual immorality, we need to know what sexual morality is. And this is hotly contested in our culture today. Who is to say what is moral and immoral, especially on the subject of sex. We as believers believe the Bible is the very word of God. We believe God is holy, which means he is morally perfect. Therefore, what he says is moral and immoral is not only right, but also good and what is best for us. And here's what the Bible says. is God designed sex. We did not invent it, nor was it an evolutionary accident or necessity. God made it with purpose and meaning. And it is a gift from God for procreation and pleasure to be experienced and joy and enjoyed within the margins of marriage. And marriage, 
according to the Bible and God's good design is the exclusive, lifelong, covenantal union and commitment between one man and one woman. And marriage is sacred in God's eyes. So sacred that God chose marriage of all things to be the emblem that reflects Christ's love for the church who is his bride. And so marriage and sex is not about self-fulfillment. From the very beginning, it was always about the glory of God. And so sexual immorality, it is any sex outside of marriage between a man and a woman. This would include any sex before marriage. We would call this premarital sex, or the old school word is fornication. Sex outside of marriage is also considered sexual immorality. So if you are married, that is called adultery. And Jesus says that if we even lust in our heart, that is adultery. And so you would put pornography under the category of sexual immorality. But this goes against what our culture says today. This generation, it speaks about sex positivity which, and I'm going to read here, it means with openness and non-judgmental approach, sex positivity embraces the diversity of sexual expression. Sex negativity is taught in abstinence in fear-based school sex education programs. Sex negativity is preached by religious leaders and instilled by many parents. It is harmful at every level. They would say what Paul is writing here in Colossians is sex negativity. That when Paul says, put away passions and desires, they would say, that is harmful teaching at every level. So who's right? Who's wrong? As believers, we trust in a perfect, good God that he knows better than we do. And that when we deviate from his good design, it is destructive. Maybe temporarily fulfilling, temporarily pleasurable, but ultimately leaving us empty. Because when you pursue sex positivity, you're gonna eventually feel empty, and maybe that's some of you here. Because they say, pursue your passions without judgment or restraint. But what if all passions aren't good? What if there's such a thing as sinful, evil passions? And that's what Paul is sharing here. The sex positivity culture, what it does, it, it makes an idol out of sex and pleasure, which were good by God's design but then hijacked and turned into an idol. Satan knows the power of pleasure and sex. In C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters, which is one, it's fictional, one demon speaking to another demon, he says this, I know we have won many a soul through pleasure. All the same, it is his invention that's God, not ours. He, God, made the pleasures. All our research so far has not enabled us to produce one. 
All we can do is encourage the humans to take the pleasures which our enemy has produced at times or in ways or in degrees which he has forbidden. And that is his goal. But we know the Bible teaches you're not going to be satisfied. You're going to feel empty and broken. And there's going to be a lot of guilt. And there's going to be a lot of shame which follows every sin. And those are consequences. When culture says you need to expand your limits, Paul is saying, actually, you need to refrain. You need to narrow down your limits. I think something that's helpful is when we think about a a fireplace. I love fireplaces. They're beautiful. You hear the crackle and pops. It sets a really nice cozy vibe. It gives you warmth. Seeing the fires flicker, it's really pretty. And I think a lot of us enjoy that. But that fire, once you take it outside of the fireplace, is no longer warm and cozy and beautiful. It is harmful and destructive. We would all agree in a house, yes, that fire is beautiful, but when it's within the limits of the hearth, when it's kept within those boundaries, it can be most enjoyed and and it's most beneficial. And God has set up boundaries. He has constructed boundaries according to the Bible so that we can most enjoy the good things that he has given to us. And what sin wants to do is to take that fire and put it elsewhere, to take that fruit that God has forbidden, believing that we know better And that we'll have greater pleasure through disobedience. And we know what happened to Adam and Eve. I also want to say that it's not just outside of the church that there's concern about teachings on sex. The church has not been perfect either. The church is not guilt-free when it comes to teaching on sex. There's a subculture within the church that reached its peak in the 90s and 2000s called purity culture. And what started off with good intentions to teach what the Bible teaches on sex, it boiled over into bad teaching, wrong motivations, a lot of fear, and a lot of shame, especially for women who I would say were disproportionately impacted by purity culture. And the message of purity culture it evolved into saying, whether it was explicit or implicit, that your sexual purity equals your worth before God and others. If the sex-positive culture idolizes sex, the purity culture within the church idolized virginity, that God is pleased with you, loves you, cares about you as long as you didn't have sex before marriage or outside of marriage. And of course, this minimized other ways to be sexually immoral, such as lust or pornography, but they didn't really talk about that. And most problematically, this minimized what Jesus did on the cross. If you had sinned in that way, it was suggested or you certainly felt that you were impure and that purity was irrecoverable and that you were stained for the rest of your life. But as believers, if you have placed your faith in Christ, 
you are not pure because you refrain from certain sins. You are not pure and loved by God because you are continuing to refrain from certain sins. For a lot of us, that's long gone. We're way past that. No, we are pure not because we refrain, but because Jesus was slain for our sins on the cross. And we are washed by his blood. And when Jesus sees us because Jesus' righteousness is credited to us, he is pleased. Yes, God knows our sin and our histories. He is not disgusted. The Bible says that we were purchased with the precious blood of Jesus, and there is no buyer's remorse on God's end. He loves all of those Jesus died for. But according to purity culture, what, what happens if you didn't remain pure before marriage? I read about what some students were taught because this was heavily pushed in youth groups and for teenagers. They would compare those who were not pure before marriage to chewed up gum. And then leaders would say, in order to motivate students to remain pure, who would want chewed up gum? And they would never give the right answer. Because the right answer is, Jesus does. Jesus died for sinners. Jesus is a friend of sinners. Jesus takes those who are broken and shamed and makes them whole again. And God treasures and cherishes all those who are his children. So what about the sexually broken and those who carry a lot of guilt because of past sexual sins they've committed? Or what about those who have a lot of shame and trauma because of sexual sin committed against them? There's something unique about sexual sin, whether it's we committed or it was committed against us, unlike other sins where there is this overwhelming sense that you lost something or something was taken from you. We don't feel that way when it comes to other sin. And so that's why there's so much shame. That's why sexual assaults and crimes are underreported. Murders are not underreported. Home invasions are not underreported. Grand theft auto is not underreported. Those are all immediately reported. And yet sexual assaults are underreported because of the shame and the guilt that comes along with it. The broken, the guilty, the shamed. Those who feel maybe like chewed up gum. Would you hear this in what Paul writes in verse three? For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Paul says that your life is hidden, is hidden in Christ. That doesn't mean you're out of sight and unseen. Because if you have sexual sin in your history, you're already hiding. You already want to be unseen. 
And it's your biggest fear that those sins would be seen. That's not what Paul is saying here. It's not just more covering up. By the word hidden, it means hidden like in a safe, in a vault. He's saying your life is now safe. You are protected. That thing which you lost or that thing that was stolen and taken from you, your worth and your identity is now safe and secure in Jesus and no one can mess with that anymore. No one can tamper with that. No one can touch that. For a lot of believers, especially with this particular sin, they wish that they could go back in time and undo the things that they've done and prevent the things that were done to them. The gospel teaches us, you don't have to do that. You don't have to wish for that. Because of the gospel and because Jesus died on the cross, because our lives are hidden in him and we will be raised in glory one day, we can live with our pasts. We can live with the trauma and guilt and shame. Yes, they shaped us, but they no longer define us. They're part of our history, but as Christians, they are no longer part of our identity. That is what we receive in Christ. And that's what it means our lives are hidden in him. I also want to address this as well. In the church, what do we expect from those who are same-sex attracted? Paul says that there are those in the church who are living in sexual immorality. Within that category would also be homosexuality and same-sex attraction. What are our expectations within the church? Do we expect that those who are same-sex attracted must become attracted to the opposite sex before they become a Christian or in order to become a Christian? According to Colossians, what we just read, the answer would be no. Paul is saying there are these Christians who are struggling with sexual immorality, all of them, like I shared earlier, that would make us blush today, what they did in the Roman Empire, and they are now saved. They are justified. They are in Christ. And now they continue and begin that process of sanctification. And those who are same-sex attracted may, by God's grace, be able to put that away in such a way that they are able to marry the opposite sex get have have kids but it's also possible that they're going to struggle with that the rest of their christian lives so what does holiness mean for them what does it mean to put that away for them it means being a faithful single christian for them marriage is off the table and it is sad and I would say it's also a reason why it's so important within the church. We don't idolize marriage. We don't idolize families. That the singles in our church feel like they're not second-class citizens, but there is a place for them and a community for them. And in Christ, there is hope and healing for all those who are sexually broken. I want to move on now to what Paul says about lying, Christian ethics on lying. 
Charles Spurgeon said that if you were to take all of our sins and put them into two buckets, in one bucket would be our sins of speech, and in the bucket, all of the other sins. Spurgeon is saying, that's how much we sin with our speech. Our words of anger and spite, the way that we gossip and slander and put each other down and cut each other down, and not just things we actually say out loud, but the many things we're thinking in our minds and in our hearts. And Paul is saying, yeah, in the church, people are still sinning a lot with their speech and in their thoughts. And now that you are in Christ, you are to be renewed in the image of your creator and to put that sinful speech away. And one way that we sin with our speech is lying. I read in Forbes that women are more likely to tell altruistic lies to avoid hurting other people's feelings and men are more, like, are more likely to lie about themselves. That men lie more to impress others and women lie more to please other people. I don't know how true that is because I sin in both ways and we all do. We fear people and we want to please people because our idol is we want to be liked by everyone. And so we tell half-truths or we just straight up lie. Or we lie to make ourselves, our marriages, our families look better than they really are because we want people to like us, look up to us. We want status. And so we lie because at the root of that, there is an idolatry of our image. And this culture says image is everything. But as Christians, we can put that away because of what Paul says in verse 3. You have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you will appear with him in glory. We don't need to look for that glory on this side of heaven. When you do, you're going to idolize it. Paul says here, you are already glorious in Christ. And when he returns, you will be raised up with him and live in glory for eternity. We don't need to be insecure anymore about our imperfect lives and our struggling marriages and that things don't look like the Joneses down the street. The remedy to our lives is knowing we have a glorious status already in our identity in Christ. And so that means we don't have to live our lives always trying to please the people around us, to impress the people around us. As Christians, we can speak the truth now in love. We can courageously stand up for our faith, even if it means a loss of social standing, because our standing before God is secure in Christ. Lastly, I want to address what Paul mentions about racism here, the Christian ethics on racism. Paul is writing to a church where Christians are treating other classes or groups as less worthy of respect, love, and protection. The Jews believed that they were superior to the Gentiles. The Greeks believed that they were superior to the barbarians and Scythians. And the free believed that they were superior to the slaves. And they were all in the same church. A simple way of putting this is that they were really snobby. There was a snobby culture within the church Paul's writing to. Social snobbery, 
racial snobbery, religious snobbery. And I would say that even in a church like ours that looks very homogenous and monoculture, there are also subcultures and tiers. Because of sin, we can be snobby about anything. Snobby about wealth, snobby about leadership positions, relational status, education, snobby about what we wear, where we live, what we drive. Paul is saying, put away this snobbiness. It's not what the gospel looks like. I think two places that I've been to where I've seen people outside of the church, the nicest to one another is the Holocaust Museum in D.C. and the Civil Rights Museum in Memphis. These are the two places I think out in public I've seen people the most courteous and considerate towards others. And it makes sense for obvious reasons. When I was at the Civil Rights Museum, I was the only Asian there that day. Everyone else was either white or black, and it was really interesting seeing the white people and the black people interact with each other. The white people felt like they're a little more on edge. But everyone was so considerate and thoughtful. You would always hear, oh, sorry, excuse me, am I in your way? Oh, excuse me, oh, sorry. And just very nice and polite. I was in a rush because I needed to catch a flight, but I wanted to see the Rosa Parks bus. You can actually get on the bus and there's a memorial and statue of Rosa Parks in, in her seat in the front. I was in a rush, and there's no real line, so it's kind of whoever gets there first can get on. There, were, there was like a big crowd, and I didn't want to get stuck behind the crowd, so I was trying to make my way forward. And then I saw these two black ladies also trying to make their way to the entrance to the bus. And, and I just thought, okay, if I just speed up a little bursts, I can cut ahead of these two ladies. But by the grace of God, I caught myself because I thought, wait, what are you doing? <laughs> you're, you're about to cut off these two black ladies to get on the Rosa Parks bus. So I stopped. I said, please go ahead of me. They smiled. I think they knew what I was thinking. It was all good. But not everyone agrees with that. Racism still exists. White supremacy still exists. Anti-Semitism still exists. So who's right and who's wrong? Says who? What do you appeal to? As Christians, we appeal to scripture. We would say we appeal to an objective authority, not just human authority, not just feelings or sentimentality. No, we would say there is a holy God who has created everyone in his image. Therefore, all are to be treated with equal dignity and respect and honor, regardless of how able you are, of your class, of your standing, of your ethnicity or race. Christians, brothers and sisters, we have the least reason because of the gospel to ever be snobby or elitist towards anybody else. Because when we stand before God and he is holy, we are so aware of our sinfulness. And we know that God came by sending his son to save us who are so undeserving. 
We know how morally inferior we are before God. And yet the good news of the gospel is that this God crossed boundaries. He did not leave us separated from him, but he sent his son to die for us and save us. If there is anyone in this world who has more reason than anyone else to lead the charge against racism, elitism, and to pursue reconciliation, it's the Christian. It's us. Paul says here in verse 11, Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. The barbarians, that term was used by the Greeks of any foreigner who was ignorant of the Greek language and culture. They had this cultural superiority. And anyone who wasn't Greek, they looked down on them as they were inferior. The Greek word for barbarian is barbaros. And they would use that to mock the way non-Greeks would speak. And you can think about maybe ways you were mocked or Asians were, are mocked for the ways that they speak. At the top of the social order at this time were free males, free men. And Paul, in the scripture, God overturns that social order. Elsewhere in Galatians 3.28, Paul writes this, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And as we come to the Lord's table at this time, we are reminded all who are in Christ are invited to come to the Lord's table. There is no VIP table for those who are more elite than others. There isn't a table over here for one race or one social class and another table over there for others. We all come to the same table because as Paul says, we are all one in Christ Jesus. Father God, I pray that through this sacrament that we would know we are made pure through the blood of Jesus. That we would know our lives are hidden and safe and secure and protected in him. We thank you for this gospel message and hope. We pray this in Jesus' name.